0: Hey, what's going on, y'all? I'm Nanurl and you're listening to Unpacked Angles with me. These episodes were recorded for the Unpacked Angles YouTube channel. So if you'd like to watch the accompanying video, you can find the link in the description. If not, feel free to sit back, listen, and enjoy. Thanks for tuning in. And today I'm going into part two of the terms that I think are essential for UX professionals to know and understand. So this time around, I'm gonna focus on the terms that we see and hear a little bit more often in the field. A lot of them will be deliverables and some other words that seem to come up in conversation pretty often. Now, I'm going to be using some of the terms that I talked about in part one, so if you have not watched that video or listened to that episode just yet, I would do that first and of course i'll be linking to the resources that cover the different terms that i'm going to be talking about today so i'll link those in the description in all honesty i'll probably make more content that goes into some of these terms a little deeper but in the meantime let's get started the first term i want to talk about is user experience research or ux research ux research is the research performed to understand your users and or your potential users. Now, while you're doing research, it's incredibly important to be aware of your biases. I hinted on this in the first video. Literally one of the first steps if you wanna get good work done. You gotta be aware of your own biases and how they might affect your research. So in my opinion, one of the best ways to do this is to have a diverse team. People who come from different backgrounds can offer you different perspectives. And I think it's especially helpful when your research team looks like your user base. So having a team that's representative of the people who actually use your products is a big help. And of course, all of this with good communication will work wonders. And there are a couple of different sides to UX research. There's quantitative UX research and qualitative. So quantitative research involves numbers. Obviously. (laughs) Quantitative researchers work with large sample sizes. When dealing with tons of information, the big data, it often tells us what's going on, what people are doing in our product, where they're navigating to, the different activities that they are engaging in. But it doesn't tell us why these people are taking these actions, which is where qualitative research comes in. Qualitative UX research involves direct interaction with the user and often will get us to that why. This type of research is typically done with small sample sizes, so you don't need a whole lot of people to conduct qualitative research, unlike with quantitative. It really doesn't take much to understand and get to the why. Usually information from five to 10 people can put you in a really good place, especially when that data you collect on the qualitative side matches the patterns that are seen on the quantitative side. There are several different methods to use to conduct user research. And depending on where you are in the process, and the amount of resources and time that you have will dictate which ones are best suited for our situation to get us the information that we're looking for. The research that's typically done to learn and discover a little bit more of things that we don't really know too much about is on the generative side. So that's called generative research. This research we use to learn and discover things that we don't know about our users or potential users. So things like interviewing people one-on-one would be considered a generative research method. Evaluative research, on the other hand, is typically used once you have a product and you're trying to evaluate or identify and observe where there may be issues with the product or prototype that's available. And so an example of an evaluative user experience research method would be usability testing. So testing out a draft or your final product with people to identify any usability issues. Term number two the MVP or minimum viable product. Now this is going to evolve over time as I talk about it, but it's still good to know what an MVP is. So the minimum viable product or MVP was coined by Eric Ries in his book, The Lean Startup. So an MVP is basically a product that solves a problem, but it is the bare minimum. You use the least amount of resources possible in order to provide this value to whoever's using your product. By creating an MVP, you can save resources, effort and even validate your idea in order to gain traction which is just popularity and or acceptance and so this acceptance is typically enough to prove to potential funders that your idea or product is valuable however at least historically they often tend to look pretty crappy and in this day and age that's not really as acceptable anymore at least in my opinion many of them do work like functionally they are functioning, but they don't actually provide the necessary and required experience that people need nowadays. Companies like Apple and Airbnb have really raised the bar on what a product should look like and feel like. And at the end of the day, it's not 2005 anymore. That janky MVP is just not gonna cut it. So enter the MLP. MLP, which stands for minimum lovable product, is described by Lawrence McHale as a product that brings back the maximum amount of love from your early users. And all of this is to be done with the least amount of effort. The MLP has a purpose. It has a why. We're jumping back to that why again. It's so important to know why all throughout UX. You'll hear it all the time. At least you'll hear me say it. MLPs have a clear purpose. People need to feel something and that MLP provides that feeling, that connection to its purpose, that connection to the why. In his article, Lawrence goes through a number of other things that make an MLP. And of course, I've linked that resource in the description. For me personally, I tend to go with the MCE, the most critical experience. So it's all about emotion, right? You cannot discount human emotion when you are creating products for humans. It's just that simple slash (laughs) complex. So what is it about your product that evokes that emotion that you want people to have? What experience leads to that reaction? That is the most critical experience. Term number three. Persona or a user persona. A persona is a characterization of your target user or users. It's not necessarily a real person. Typically, they represent multiple people in your user base. You could be an organization with one persona or five. It doesn't necessarily mean you only have one or five users. These personas are constructed based on real information that you know about your users and from people. So how do you get it? research. These personas are constructed based off of real information obtained from real people. When building a persona, they tend to at least have a picture or an image, a name and or a title, a bio, and some characteristics about them. So what are their motivations, their goals, their pain points, and their behaviors. Personas really help to keep the team on track. It reminds everyone who you're actually creating, Four. It humanizes your users. So instead of thinking in the abstract, not really putting a face to a name, now you have this actual representation of a human in front of you where you can be reminded that you are actually solving problems for real people because it is very easy to get off track. So user experience research, specifically qualitative research, helps to shape your personas as you grow with your product. Term number four, Information architecture, or IA. So information architecture is all about arranging content within your product in a way that people understand. The content that is found in the navigation of a website that you love is not there by accident, or at least it should not be. Knowing where to put what information and how to make sense of all that may not be immediately clear to you or your team, which is again, where UX research comes in. There is a method called card sorting, which can help identify different ways in which your groupings of the content within your site or product would make sense to people who are most likely to use it, which helps you and your team understand how users might group information. and that way, you can make whatever you're making makes sense to them. Now, there is a concept called the three-click rule, which states that you should not have content buried so far in that your user has to click or tap more than three times. It's a hypothesis, kinda, that people will stop using your app or products or whatever you have created or become frustrated if they have to tap or click more than three times thank God that people now understand that this is a myth. (laughs) It's a myth. Don't believe the hype. No, it's not based on anybody's facts or data. So this unofficial heuristic is not set in stone and I don't honestly think it should be applied anywhere. If you can get your content within three clicks or taps, great. But if you can't, fine, just as long as the UX is good. So for example, if you have a good amount of content and you're trying to squeeze everything in to fit this three-click rule, your UX is gonna suffer. You're gonna have too much information on a single screen. Why not just make it four or five clicks in or divide your information up in a way where they don't see what they don't need to see until they need to see it. So just as long as your user experience within your product is on point, Three clicks, five clicks, whatever, it's, don't do it. It's not, it's, it's not real. You can toss it out the window. And for those of you who are working for companies who swear by this rule, because I know there are still companies out there, tell your boss I said it. Term number five, user stories. User stories are actions that different kinds of users can take within your product. Usually they're created before anything is actually designed and they can serve as requirements for what should be included in your design and in your final product. So these requirements or stories consist of what users should be able to do and the priority of that action. So a user story is structured in this way. As a blank user, I want to blank so that I can blank. So there's a type of user, an action that the user wants to take, and a reason that they want to take that action. So for example, as a new user, I want to sign up so that I can edit my profile. That would typically be considered a high priority because you want people to be able to sign up for your product. So these function as helpful reminders for who you're building for and what they should be able to do. Term number six is user flow. So again, the user flow is typically created before the solution that is the actual design and it describes the steps that users have to take in order to complete a task or achieve a goal. So every action that you can take within an app or website can have its own flow. It dictates the journey that you experience while using the product as a user. So user stories help to inform the flow. So if we take the example from before, as a new user, I want to sign up so that I can access my profile or edit my profile. That would translate into an actual user flow. So if I'm the user, I would start off on a homepage or a landing page of some sort. I would need to click. Click a button to sign up, fill in my information, and then click a button to enter that information. So all of the different steps that I have to take as a user are documented in this user flow. And then it ends with me being able to access my profile. User flows help to communicate what your product needs to do. It is an especially useful way to communicate with your team to make sure everyone is on the same page, especially between designers and developers. User flows are workflows, so they do have a specific syntax that is a way that you're supposed to draw them. But as long as your team or your organization are all on the same page, then it really doesn't matter. You're good. But it is good and useful to know what the proper syntax actually is. Similar to user flows are screen flows. Screen flows are basically user flows, but after the product has already been designed. And they can be really helpful with communication as well. Typically, you'll see these with mock-ups or wireframes, which I'll get into in a second, but basically pictures of what your product looks like, the different designs of different screens. So, it shows how you get from one screen to the next for different flows or different tasks within your product. Term number seven wireframes. You can think of wireframes as the blueprint for how your screens will actually look. They come in a range of fidelities, which is essentially just saying you can have any amount of detail on them. So for low fidelity wireframes, you typically don't see too much text, if any at all on them. There are no pictures, no icons, and no color. They're typically created in grayscale or black and white. I tend to do medium fidelity wireframes because those are a bit easier to get feedback on. So I will include some text, maybe some of it's draft text, some of it is descriptive, maybe describing what words might be in one place. Other times it might be the actual copy that I'm thinking about using and want to get feedback on. I might include images if That's something that I think will make the wireframe a little bit more understandable. But for the most part, it's only the things that I really want to get feedback on early that I'll put in the medium fidelity wireframe. I don't do color unless I think it's necessary. So for the wireframing process, it's really good to start out with a sketch, like on pen and paper. Sometimes people have said they've done like you know, wireframes on napkins, like whatever you have to do, but sketch it out so that you can get your thoughts together. Sketching it out first and sharing that with your team and getting input before you go to the computer and actually digitize it will save you a buttload of time and energy. There are a few tools that I have in mind that I typically use for digitizing my wireframes. I might do some content in the future on tools. I'm not really sure if I want to go into that or not, but if you're interested, let me know in the comments. Term number eight, mock-ups. Mock-ups are the static version of what your product's final look is like. It's basically pictures of the screens that you're going to include or that you're planning to include in your final product. So when we're talking high fidelity, we're including color. We're including all of the images, icons, text, typography. So what fonts you're planning on using, all of the works. Typically after the wireframes are good to go, you've tested them out, you've iterated incorporated feedback wherever you need to incorporate it. Then you take those wireframes and transform them into high fidelity mockups. Pixel perfect is a term that may be thrown around a lot out there. Some organizations want pixel perfect designs, some of them don't need them. But at the end of the day, they give the designer more control over the actual design. So you're able to define all of the sizing and the spacing between different elements. So like buttons, text fields, icons. So everything in the design you've defined specifically as being this large and this far apart, this color, all of that. Typically also what you would provide as a designer is a style guide which helps to maintain design consistency throughout the entire product. So if you've designed a pixel perfect button that is 40 pixels long, once it gets coded by development it should be 40 pixels long on the screen. This is especially good practice when you're not in regular communication with development. So for example, if you're a freelancer or maybe even if you're a remote employee, it can make things a little easier. Turn number nine, prototype. So a prototype is a preliminary model of your product that is used to communicate how it's going to work. So like in software, of course, like your prototype is gonna be on a phone or on a computer, but you can also have like physical prototypes as well for hardware. So if you're like building a bike and you have a prototype of a bike, you have, I guess, a model of what that bike is about to be. Well in software you do the same thing. So these prototypes help you to be able to test with other people in order to make sure that what you are designing and building is the right thing for everyone you're trying to help. So you can actually prototype at different stages in the design process. So early on you know you might have something that's super low fidelity and want to test out you know the concept or the layout or maybe even a few flows. You can do this easily with a low fidelity prototype or a paper prototype where you literally just draw the screens. Some people go all out and have like these beautifully done paper prototypes. And like, I've always wanted to do that. I have not had the chance to do it yet, but you can also just sketch some stuff out on paper and be just fine with that too. A pro when it comes to paper prototyping is that it's cheap. It does not waste resources and it helps you to get feedback quickly. A con with this method of prototyping though, is that sometimes people will not be able to get it, (laughs) especially like if your paper prototype is like the the greatest, sometimes people have a hard time visioning what you're envisioning for this product. So, especially if the fidelity is too low, you might have trouble getting good feedback, along with the fact that it is just paper and some people don't have as much of an imagination. Also, after your wireframes are done, you can convert those into prototypes as well. So wireframe prototypes you can actually do on your phone or on the computer. So it helps to make it a little bit more realistic. And for these digital wireframes, you can test at low fidelity or you can test at medium fidelity. And I would recommend testing at medium fidelity just to get more in-depth feedback. And of course, you wanna prototype your high fidelity mockups. So these prototypes can actually be super detailed. They can include animations and transitions and other types of interactions depending on which tool you use to prototype. So it can basically almost be the full product in all honesty. And this is all without having to do any coding. It's all design. So of course you're saving time that way, but also it is possible to create prototypes with code. You will be utilizing a lot of time and resources in order to do this though but if it's necessary then it's possible. I'm actually not 100% sure why or when this would be necessary but if one of you guys out there does know feel free to hit my comments and let me know because I just don't see I don't see it. And finally the last term is usability test or user test. Now this whole time I've been talking about testing things out. So usability testing is a form of UX research where you put your product in front of a potential user or current user and you have them interact with it. So that way you can observe and learn about any problems, any issues, any positive things like you want to take in all of the information. So there are several different types of usability tests that you could do. There's in-person, remote, unmoderated, and moderated. So for in-person moderated usability testing, you're conducting an in-person face-to-face test and you, as the UX researcher or facilitator, whatever you wanna call it, are giving them tasks to complete and you are observing. And these can happen anywhere. They can happen in a lab, they can happen outside in a park, they can happen in a coffee shop, just kind of wherever you're at or wherever you would like your participants to meet you. This is the best way to do usability testing, in my opinion, because you are actually face-to-face with people. That way you can pick up on body language in addition to the things that they say. Then there's remote moderated testing, where you are kind of still face-to-face, but online. So using a platform like Zoom or Google Hangouts, somewhere where you're video chatting and also continuing to facilitate the tasks. I would say that this is the second best way to do research in that you still get to have that face-to-face interaction. And also, if there are ever times when you need more clarification or wanna ask a few more questions, you'll be able to do that since you're seeing the participant take the test in real time. And lastly, there's remote, unmoderated testing. There's in-person unmoderated as well but you're literally just kind of sitting there watching them struggle or be successful and you're taking notes. Remote unmoderated testing. So this type of testing is usually conducted online without a facilitator so it's most likely going to be your responsibility to create the tasks beforehand. There are actually platforms to help you with this. Thank God. So tools like usertesting.com will actually record the screen of your participant and their voice at the same time so you can hear the feedback that they're giving you while talking out loud and you can see what they're doing within your prototype or your product. So for this type of testing especially you are going to need a screener and a screener is basically a survey that helps you to weed out people who are not in your target market and you have to be careful when you create this. I have seen so many terrible screeners to the point where it's just like, I'm going to get through your survey on purpose just to see if I can do it. And I've done it plenty of times. Side note, I do not take the tests afterward though because that would be skewing the person's data. I believe in karma, I also have integrity and I'm not about to lie my way into a test. So it's really great to keep in mind that we have to be careful when we create these because you don't wanna make it too narrow in that nobody's able to get through your screener but also you don't wanna make it too wide for any old body to just be getting through. I could actually talk about this all day. Maybe I'll create some content on how to actually write a good screener. Let me know if you're interested. So usability tests are mainly qualitative in that you're gaining information from people on like how they feel about your product and why they feel that way. Also, you're able to understand or dive into why they're taking the actions that they're taking within your prototype or live product. So those are all of the terms I have for you guys today. Thank you for tuning in. I hope this was helpful. If it was, please let me know in the comments. I love to get all of the feedback y'all already know. So go ahead and drop me a line, but like I mentioned before, I've included all of the resources in the description for all of the terms that I talked about today. If you're really interested in learning about something else within UX or you would like to dive deeper into one of the terms specifically that I talked about today, feel free to let me know. As I create more content on the different terms, I will be sure to link those in the description as well over time, so be sure to check back. Or if you're watching this sometime after it's already been uploaded, be sure to to check out what's there thank you again if you enjoyed what you heard feel free to stick around with me and enjoy the ride hit that subscribe button if you want to get notifications about when i post go ahead and hit that notification bell as well i post every other wednesday you can check us out on the website at unpackedangles.com or on social media at unpackedangles check us out hit us up let us know what you got going on but until next time do